Matthew 26, verse 1, says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. And we'll pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we can turn to your word and that we have this, this record of these events, Lord, and just for the salvation, um, the gospel message that is being presented even in these passages as we're leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and the payment of our sin on that cross, Lord. So we just, again, help us to keep these things in mind as we're looking at these verses, Lord, and I just ask that you would just be with us this morning. Help us um, as we're looking at this passage and the things that we're going to see today. We pray, we pray your help and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what I want to see, what we're going to look at this morning, I mentioned I'd come back to it. I didn't know I'd come back this fast, but there's so many things as we go through this chapter it's like it jumps from one thing to the next to the next, and we can gather little bits as we go through it. I was like trying to not read the entire passage and try to, to build something from the whole thing. And so I'm just going to pick parts of it here and there um, to try to get some points out of this that, that are useful for us. And the second point last week was just dealing with um, Judas and then looking at the disciples and how... When, when Jesus was telling each of them that one of you is going to betray me, every one of them looked at themselves, questioning if they would be the one who would do such a thing. And none of them suspected each other. And that's how we ought to be looking you know, around the building here as well, realizing that we should be, should be more skeptical of our own <laughs> selves than we are of, of the other people around us. Um, I see that in my own heart. Some days I wonder, what in the world am I doing pastoring a church? <laughs> and yet God's put me here and, and is using, using me in this position. And so we just continue to, to work on, on the, the issues that he brings forth in our lives and, and deal with those things. So this morning, looking at this part where Verse 3, they assembled the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. If there was ever a conspiracy, this would be one. And I think, I'm not going to dwell on that, but Jesus would have been called a conspiracy theorist, right? Because he was constantly telling his disciples that Someone's going to betray me, and they're going to kill me. He would say it to the Pharisees. You guys are trying, and who's trying to kill you? Nobody's trying to kill you. Yeah, they were. <laughs> they're conspiring to do this. So anyway, that's not my point. But they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. And verse 5 says, But they said not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. They're concerned about the people. 
And it's, it's always an issue, right, is the people. Because people in a crowd can have a major influence on what happens. And if, if you can't manipulate the crowd, in this case, they needed to manipulate the crowd in such a way that they would get behind them and support what they were doing. But they knew that this was a tricky thing and that if they weren't careful, that crowd could turn against them. And this could go completely backwards from what they were planning. And so they need to consider the crowd. And so as they're making this plan of how we're going to get this guy killed, they're also very aware of the crowd and the power of the crowd. And it's that power of the crowd that I want to look at this morning. And there's two, two basic aspects of that. The first is that that crowd can cause me to act in a way that I would not normally act. I can, it can make us do things that we wouldn't normally do. But on the other hand, the second point is that it can cause us to not act in a way that we would normally do act. And so this can be either good or bad in, in both sides of this. And so a crowd can cause us to act positively in a way that we normally wouldn't act, or it can cause us to do terrible things that we wouldn't normally do. And it can prevent us from either acting out in, in sin in some wrong way, or it can prevent us from doing the good that we would normally do. And so the crowd can have a big influence on the things that we do in, in two different directions. We're going to look at that just a little bit more this morning. And so, first I want to look at this crowd. The crowd that they're concerned about. If we go back just a few chapters, in chapter 21 in Matthew, we see the multitude that they're talking about. And we can see the reason why they're concerned about the people. So we get to Matthew 21 and verse 6. I'll just read a little bit here. It says, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then when he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city was moved by, by this multitude that went before and behind. Like, they're all around Jesus, and it's a multitude. It's a crowd of people coming into the city, making this uproar, praising and practically worshiping Jesus. And so this whole city sees this procession, and everyone's like, what is going on, and who is this that's coming? Because this 
this isn't something that happens on a, on a regular basis. This must be somebody important. But you look at that picture and you think, I don't know how, like we, we do, like this is what we call Palm Sunday, right? And we, we recognize Palm Sunday, like the, the week of what we call Easter, leading into Passover when there's a crucifixion and, and then it's like less than a week between this moment and when Jesus is being crucified. It's just a couple of days between these two events. How can you manipulate a crowd to go from doing this, bringing Jesus in as their king, and we'll notice that, as we get into his trial, Pilate doesn't even say, who, <laughs> he says, shall we release unto you you're the king of the Jews? <laughs> he, he knows what he's being called. He knows, the Romans know what the people are lifting Jesus up as. He's being lifted up as their king. So how do you get the crowd that hails him as their king in two or three days to yellow crucify him, crucify him. Now there's some manipulation of the crowd that, that's taking place. This is getting a crowd to do some things that they wouldn't naturally or normally have done. There's something going on there. We get to, and I'll, let's look at that, in verse 21 of Matthew 26. I'm wrong. That's not where it says it. You'll take my word. <laughs> that when it comes to his trial, and when they're, they're there before Pilate. Ah, sorry. Let's go to Luke. Luke 23. We'll look at the, the passage here. We'll read this, this whole account, or the part of the account here. Luke 23, sorry, Luke 13. No, all right, 23. I'm in Luke 13 for some reason. Luke 23, starting in verse 13. It says, And then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I have examined him before you and have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done in him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. 
And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. Here's where, verse 21, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Who's crying that out? Verse 13, Pilate, when he called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, the people are there. Presumably the same people who just a couple of days earlier were welcoming Jesus and calling him their king as he entered into Jerusalem. They have turned this crowd who in one, one day, hail, Hosanna, they're bowing before him. And two, three days later, crucify him. What a change. How do we change a crowd like that? A crowd can cause us to do things that we normally wouldn't do. I knew this thing was going to try to shut off before I... I grabbed just a couple of videos. And I'm sure you're familiar with these events. Seattle, when police lost control of downtown, crowds destroyed, then took over. 
capturing one man, removing a high-powered police rifle before a plainclothes security guard disarmed the man, clearing the magazine. But there was also troubling scenes caught on camera at the hands of police. This video appearing to show an officer putting his knee on the neck of someone taken into custody before another officer pulls his leg off. These are normal people. Many of these are probably church-going people. Just that got involved, went to join something where there's no, there's no question that what happened to George Floyd was wrong. There's no question that the police were overly brutal and were the cause, at least a major part of the cause of him dying. There's no question that there was racism involved in, in that whole ordeal, that it's wrong. Was it, should we protest such things and try to make change? Absolutely. But what happened? Does turning cities upside down, destroying, destroying cities, like, I can't even, I think it's like five miles of buildings in Minneapolis were destroyed. <laughs> like an entire street worth of buildings is completely destroyed and burned. And many businesses, many black owned businesses destroyed. <laughs> by black people, completely ransacked and looted. And this is people, normal people that you would be friends with on a normal basis and might sit beside in a church service who saw the injustice and what happened and thought, hey, I should go get involved and make my voice heard that there's something wrong with this. These are just regular people. And they started and did that because of a few and then the crowd joins in, and it turns to chaos. This is normal people doing things that they wouldn't normally do because of the crowd that joined them, or that they joined among. This is equivalent to what, sorry, not, not quite, not quite equivalent to what happened in, to Jesus, but it's a similar thing where the crowd is influenced by the loud voices and just get drawn in to what's going on. We like to think that we're immune to, to that kind of behavior. But if you put yourself in that situation, if you show up in a crowd that starts doing some of these things, even any of us can get caught up in the energy of that and it can influence our behavior and cause us to do things that we wouldn't normally do like yellow crucify him toward Jesus if we go back into Matthew 26 we'll look at Peter a little bit get toward the end of the chapter. Matthew 26, we'll start in verse 69. It says, Now Peter sat without in the palace, 
And a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter actually does both things that I mentioned here. The first thing, he stopped acting the way that he would normally act. He stopped. Remember when Jesus told him that he would betray him? What was his response? No way. I'll go to the death with you. And it looked that way during his arrest. But as Peter found himself alone among a crowd that was gathered around where Jesus' mock trial was taking place, things changed, right? Now he's surrounded by those that are opposing him, and he's being singled out, and he starts to deny that he has anything to do with that man. How hard is it as a Christian when we're surrounded by lost people to make a solid stand for Christ, for our faith, for what we believe and profess to believe. Do we often shut our mouth when we're around that crowd of people? We don't want to be singled out, right? And that's very, very normal for us. And then Peter does the first thing at the end of this. He goes so far, not only did he stop professing Christ, but because... I can tell the way you talk that you're one of them. So he starts swearing and cursing. Completely changed who he was, didn't he? All because of the crowd of people that was around him. This can be done in both directions. Um... If we go back, again, to Matthew 21, that same passage we looked at. We start here in verse 8. It says, And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. Do you think everybody in this crowd was a true believer in Christ, a true follower? Or do you think that some people just kind of gathered because there's a crowd? They wanted to see what was going on. They just got caught up in what was going on. And people are cutting stuff down off the trees and they're throwing their jackets and blankets. and They just took part in this thing, in the praising of Jesus and welcoming him into the city. They're doing good. Because of the crowd that they're in. 
It can go both ways. If you get it around the right crowd, it can influence us to do better. Here's a second one that you're familiar with. I just want to make the comparison between the two things. Blaring horns, impassable streets, all the work of a new movement calling itself Freedom Convoy. Trumpers demanding an anti-COVID-19 vaccine mandates have disrupted major Canadian cities and clogged key U.S.-Canada border crossings. And now, copycat protests are spreading around the world. After vaccine mandates for cross-border truckers were imposed in January by Canada and the United States, a so-called Freedom Convoy was organized in protest. Truck drivers traveled across Canada to Ottawa, then parked themselves downtown in a show of solidarity. The protests have expanded to oppose government restrictions more generally against unvaccinated people and include signs like, Vaccines don't save people, Jesus saves people, and no, I won't back down. Two border blockades, one in Ontario and one in Alberta, are disrupting hundreds of millions of dollars in Canada-U.S. trade, ranging from cattle to car parts. We have Canadian stocks. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has refused to meet with protest organizers while butting heads with opposition lawmakers over coronavirus restrictions. We're going to stay focused on keeping people alive and safe and healthy and indeed prosperous. Some provinces have eased COVID-19 measures since the start of the protests, but have denied there's a connection. A court granted an interim injunction this week preventing people from sounding horns in downtown Ottawa. Protesters say they are peaceful, but some Ottawa residents have reported being harassed and some protesters have waved Confederate flags and swastikas. Police have generally avoided aggressive efforts to end the blockade and hope a combination of criminal charges, traffic tickets, and the prospect of losing access to fuel will disperse demonstrators. Police say they've arrested at least 23 people. The protests, which were recently praised by former U.S. President Donald Trump, have since sprung up in Australia, New Zealand, and France. Like in the city of Perpignan on Wednesday, where some 200 people gathered en route to Paris in a freedom convoy of cars, some camper vans, and one heavy goods vehicle. Truckers in the United States have said they are planning similar demonstrations. Notice there's a difference between those two protests. <laughs> a drastic difference in that. They're trying to find something negative to say about what the people are doing here. Because there is no violence, there is no destruction, nothing going on. And you notice I didn't nitpick the sources. This is just a mainstream media report of what was going on. So it's not like I, I picked you know, a, a side that wasn't going to show what was actually happening. I showed up at that in Ottawa. Torsten did as well. And... You know what shocked me? Lots of things shocked me about it. But what shocked me the most was how safe I felt. <laughs> I would have, having been there in that, I would, have, I would have sent my wife by herself. I would have sent a, a, a mom with a small child 
to that environment and felt perfectly safe that they would be okay. And you know what? Not all those people there were church-going, born-again Christians. There was a lot of really rough-looking folks. You start talking to some of those truckers, they weren't naturally calm, peaceful people. These were people that in their heart, they wanted to destroy and make an uproar. But they refrained themselves from doing it for the sake of the crowd. That guy with the, the, whatever the flags were, if you search enough videos, you can see that the actual protesters actually chased that guy out of there. He was seen once. (laughs) The desecration to the monuments. They put a flag on Terry Fox. (laughs) They did nothing drastic. In fact, they set up, the people cleaned the city. They picked up garbage. They brought food to the homeless shelters. There was, when we were there, like, we took food so that we could feed ourselves. We were there for a few days. We ended up giving most of that food away because we were fed. Everywhere we went, there was food being handed to us. To anybody that walked by, you didn't have to be a part of what was going on. There was just food everywhere. At the, there was a big tent set up. They were prepping food for the truckers that couldn't go and get their own. They were delivering the food. And in that tent area, there was every supply of everything that a person could need provided. Like, the donations were just endless. And the provision for people and the constant checking on people to make sure everyone's okay. To make sure if there's anything you needed, it got supplied. This is not these people's normal personalities that came through in this. When we're walking downtown, I'll just put this, I think I've said it before, but we're, we're sitting in the, the tent one evening just visiting, and this guy from Alberta had just shown up, and there's a Frenchman from Quebec sitting at the table, and this guy comes over and introduces himself. The Frenchman gets up and hugs the Albertan. If you don't know Albertans and Quebecers, they don't get along. <laughs> this is not normal behavior for these two men. And I, I guarantee it, it's not normal for either of these men to hug another man as they greet each other. People were doing things that are not normal for people to do because of the influence of the crowd around them. I'm not promoting the thing specifically. Not condemning the other thing. I'm just saying the two crowds are polar opposites. And the influence of those two crowds had absolute opposite impacts on the people that were involved. One took good people who would never do anything illegal, never destroy property, never loot and steal, ended up doing those things. And yet this other crowd where many of these people would naturally do and take part in those kinds of things, refrain themselves from doing it because of the crowd they were in. 
What's my point? <laughs> the crowd that you hang around with will determine who you are, will determine how you act and behave, and will influence your character. I've got just a handful of verses just to, to run through and read on that topic. We'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Corinthians 15, verse 33, says, Be not deceived. Evil communication corrupts good manners. It's a very simple statement, but evil communication, I think some versions would say bad company, <laughs> corrupts good manners. Who you're around, how you're communicating, the things that the company that you keep can corrupt your behavior, and your, the things that you do. While we're in the New Testament, we'll go to Galatians chapter 5. This is an interesting verse, the way that it, he phrases this. Galatians 5, uh, verses 7 through 9. It says, ye did run well. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. This is, you were doing so good. What happened? What happened? So this persuasion, you've been persuaded to do things that you ought not to be doing. And it didn't come from us, from those that called you, from your church. This didn't come from your church leadership, right? The things that you're doing were not guided by the right people. It's a question to ask. What happened? <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's God's instruction to us. It's like, Stop joining the world and the things that the world is doing when it's taking you away from the life that you ought to be living. But transform your mind. Renew it in the things of God. Get around the right people. Which, speaking of, when you go to Proverbs 27... Proverbs 27, verse 17. Just a reminder to us. It says, Iron sharpeneth iron, 
And so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Do I need to explain iron sharpeneth iron? Like, take a file, it's hardened steel, nice little ridges on it, and you can sharpen your knife or your axe. One chunk of metal sharpens the other chunk of metal. You can take a smooth, you take a fairly sharp knife and you take a smooth piece of steel and you just slide the blade along the side of it. And it turns out reasonably sharp knife almost into a razor. This is the description that he uses to describe what you and I are supposed to be like with each other. We can talk about other things. Like we talk about hunting and cars and, you know, like we talk about things, like worldly things. But if that's the extent of our conversation, we're not doing this. We're not doing what God has given us to do. And that we're supposed to be an encouragement to one another. We should be asking each other of our, how we're doing spiritually. Like, how, what's the last time you, you talked about, hey, what, have you read anything lately that's, you know, really impacted you? Like, have you, yesterday morning, doing my morning, morning Bible reading, I sat there, I don't even know how long, because, and I'm doing this weird Bible reading where I'm following this guy, a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. And so it's jumping around. And I must have read a week's worth of readings that yesterday morning because I just wanted to keep going in the story. <laughs> I wanted to carry on, like in, uh, of all places, uh, Chronicles, First Chronicles, and then in Romans. And like, you'd get upset when it switched from Chronicles to Romans. And like, okay, well, I, I need to get back into Chronicles. And I, I look at that, and you liked Romans, so you want to keep reading in Romans. And just kept going back and forth. I'm like, I just want to keep going. <laughs> Do you have that conversation with people? Of like, you encourage them in their reading and what they're learning in Scripture and how this is impacting us? Do you, do you ask, how can I pray for you? I've got a friend that we don't talk frequently, but every time we talk, it's like, hey, can I pray for you? Hmm, that's kind of weird. <laughs> Not a lot of people do that, right? But every time he wants to pray. Well, that's a good thing. That's, that's an encouragement to me, and it strengthens me and helps, helps me, and it, it drives me to, to live more like what I ought to live like. Like he's, he's that push in that direction. And he causes me to be a better person than I would be on my own. And that's what we are supposed to be as a church family, is that push with each other to be a better person. Like the crowd that was throwing the stuff before Jesus, not everybody there obviously was like 100% on board with that, but they were caught in that crowd and it drew them in and they became a part of that. And that's how we ought to be, is like this spirituality and serving Christ and the understanding of the gospel and its effect in our lives should make us rub off on others 
And we should all be doing that, and it should make us to grow and to, to do things that we wouldn't normally do, but in a good way. And it should cause us to stop doing the wrong things that we would normally do as well. I think there's a, there's a good, good statement. <laughs> it's better to walk alone than with a crowd going the wrong direction, but it's so much better if you have a crowd going the right direction with you, isn't it? <laughs> We need to be that crowd for each other. And we'll finish in Hebrews chapter 10. Start in verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. I don't know, if it, I don't know what the different versions do here. I've got a semicolon with a, a bracket there. It's a winking, smiley face. I think God did that on purpose. <laughs> he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Like, our, our purpose, and we're here, but our purpose as we gather here should be to provoke one another. Are you provoking each other? <laughs> to love and to good works? There's a different kind of provoking, right? Fathers provoke not your children to wrath. There's something something about that. We're to provoke one another to love and to good works, considering one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Do you see? There's a day approaching. There's some things going on in our world. We're studying Revelation, and you'd, you'd almost think that we're reading it. <laughs> when we you get to passages that speak of the Euphrates River drying up, and then you go online and you see stories of the Euphrates River drying up. Well, that's weird. <laughs> I don't think it's quite the fulfillment of this passage. The context isn't all there, but it sure is a look like a precursor to it. It's like you see the day approaching. <laughs> The events going on in the world certainly point us to the end that the Bible describes as coming. And it fits perfectly. We should be gathering all the more and be that much more fervent in our desire to provoke one another to serve the Lord in these things. Anyway, let's pray.